Good morning again. I'm Ted, for those of you who do not know me, one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to share with you God's Word this morning, so please turn your Bibles to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. If you're new with us or haven't been in a little while, we have uh, taken a really quick look at a few, just a few psalms in the month of November. Today we are finishing that. You'll see a slide. It's called Cry Out. Uh, You just saw that slide. Here's another one that shows you where we've been, what you've missed, as well as where we are today. And the acronym there just helps us to um, understand the point of it, which is simply learning different ways to pray to God. And so this week we are focusing, appropriately so, on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is one of the very important disciplines within our prayer, within our communal relationship with our Heavenly Father. Uh, very important one as well. And you'll see the, uh, the title of today's sermon on the next slide. I've entitled it, With My Whole Heart. With My Whole Heart. We'll see that in the text today as well. Just that importance of, of heart worship coming from the inside through our lips, the opposite of what we call lip service. So we're looking at Psalm 11 this morning, and I have a question for parents. Appropriately so, we just had our our baby dedication, our family dedication here a moment ago. So those of you in the room who are parents, regardless of your age, if you're a parent, has this ever happened to you where at some point in raising your little ones, maybe even teenage ones, you save them from what would have been certain death, right? A little tongue-in-cheek there, but you know that the falling and you catch them or, or something like that where you did something at the last moment and they were just getting ready to meet some sort of tragic pain. And if that's happened to you, you know what I'm talking about. It happened to my wife a few years ago with, with Silas when he was a little guy. He, she walked into the room catching him in the top bunk just getting ready to lunge for the ceiling fan. And of course, if you've experienced that, what usually happens? You put your kid down and then he runs, runs off without saying thanks. As if like, you know, you're sitting there recovering, your heart is beating and you're thinking about what have, could have happened and the child just runs off like nothing. No thanks, no thought of it. And I, I illustrate that this morning so that we can understand what God has dealt with in history when it comes to his covenant people. We, of course, we see a lot in the Old Testament where he has done so much to save and rescue and redeem them. And yet for the most part, they go on without ever saying thanks or even caring about what he has done. And of course, those of us who are in Christ, uh, we face that same danger. And today's Psalm, both for Israel in the old covenant and us today in the new covenant, serves as a reminder of the importance of giving thanks and appreciation for what God has done throughout history to save his children. Now, a little bit of context background for this specific Psalm. Psalm 111 was written after the Babylonian exile. So it's one of several Psalms that were written after Judah came back from captivity to Judah, to Jerusalem, and resettled in that land, which is really important because they just learned a lesson, a 70-year lesson, of what happens when you take God's grace for granted. So uh, this was very important in the life of their church. This is a hymn of praise. Lately, we've been looking at hymns of lament. This is a hymn of praise and celebration. It would have been used in the liturgical worship of God, probably during Passover. So just imagine them using this in the great congregation, maybe in the temple courts during the festival of Passover or even one of the important Jewish festivals. Now, I wish we could read Hebrew 
this morning. Maybe some of you can. I cannot. I learned it long enough to pass and forgot it all. But if we could read Hebrew, we would appreciate this psalm on a whole nother level because the author of this psalm wrote an acrostic poem. So we have 23 lines here from verses 2 through 10 where each line begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I can't even imagine the skill it takes to do that. You have sat under many preachers who have alliterated their sermon points where they all, it all starts with the same word or a word with the same letter. That takes a lot of work. I can't imagine doing an acrostic 23-line poem, and yet that's what Psalm 111 is. So I want you to appreciate that and encourage you to even uh, dig deeper and maybe study that aspect because it's beautiful, beautiful composition. Uh, the other fact that I'll share with you before we uh, get to our sermon is this psalm forms a unit, a cohesive unit with Psalm 112. So the two were used together. Uh, some even think they were written by the same human author, but a very, very important psalm in the corporate worship of Israel and also for us today. Now, you'll see the big idea here on the, on the screen. This is our sermon in a sentence um, uh, for us this morning. It will guide us through this passage. Today's psalm invites us to give thanks to our majestic and glorious King for his redeeming work on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what has been a sweet time of worship already. We thank you for the brief time that we have had in this incredible collection of songs, poems, and hymns uh, that you call psalms, that we call psalms in the Old Testament. It has been a sweet time, one that beckons us to return one day and spend more time with these great uh, works of worship and lament and many other genres we have not even gotten to. And as we come back to this psalm this morning, Lord, let what is true for the psalmist be true of each one of us who put our hope in you, that we will praise and give you thanks always, daily, for your redeeming and saving work in our lives and throughout the history of your covenant people uh, all the way back through time. And as we celebrate, Lord God, as we celebrate and ponder and think of all you have done to save your children and us specifically, let us look forward with hope to your coming and the fact that you're going to keep those promises which, which remain that include us going to be with you in our eternal home for all eternity. We love you, Lord. We pray that no one will leave here unchanged today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're looking at Psalm 11. Um, one important reminder about Psalms, and I've said this before, I'm really saying it to myself, is it's not uh, an epistle, right? So there's no prescriptive literature here. It's also not history, Right? So it's not descriptive like narratives. It's its own thing. Logic kind of goes out the window, which is really hard for me because I try to preach Psalms like Paul wrote them, and it just doesn't work. We have to remind ourselves of that. So the outline I have for us today simply is a very loose outline. That was my intention, just so that we can look at this jewel and appreciate it for what it is and then obey what it's calling us to do as God's people. So uh, the first three verses is simply a call to worship because that's, that's what it is, especially verse one. It is a call to worship. So let's read verses one through three. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart 
in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Now, I told you that uh, verses 2 through 10 is the acrostic poem. So verse 1 is outside of that, and it, it serves as a call to worship. Again, this is being used in worship. Uh, the English praise the Lord is the word hallelujah. That's hallelujah. You can hear the, the Yah at the end is referring to Yahweh. Praise the Lord. And then he lets the congregation know the nature of this invocation to worship. It's going to be thanksgiving. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord. And there we see the title of our sermon today, with my whole heart. Wholeness only comes for those who are in Christ, for those who fear the Lord. Because when we don't fear the Lord, we fear man. And when we fear man, we are divided. And you guys know what I mean. We've all been there. So he is worshiping God from a whole heart, not lip service, not lip service at all. I'm guilty of lip service. It's happened several times where I'm sitting right there singing the songs, thinking about the sermon. And I've got to bring myself back to making sure my lips are connected to my heart. And that's what the psalmist is doing here for us. And as he continues with this call to worship, look what he does here at the end of verse one. He says, in the company of the upright. Now there's only two categories of people from God's point of view, the upright and the wicked. So the psalmist here is subtly, as one theologian put it, he's subtly fencing the table, kind of like we do with the Lord's Supper. When we get up here and we, we open up the Lord's Supper, we'll say it's for those who have been born again, only for those who are in Christ. He's kind of doing that here. He's fencing the table, reminding us of the fact that only the upright, only those who have been regenerated by the grace of God can worship him in this way, can give thanks to him. So uh, really interesting there, again, inviting the congregation in to worship. Now, I've included verses two and three in this first part, in this call to worship, because they introduce to us the, uh, the creedal formula that the psalmist is going to use the rest of the psalm. And so in verse two, we understand the theme of this psalm, of this worship. The theme is celebration of God in redemption, celebration of what he has done throughout all of redemptive history to save his people. And you see that in verse two. He says, great are the works of the Lord. Great are the saving works of the Lord. And then we see a very interesting clause there in verse two. Studied by who? All who delight in them. This is beautiful here. We have an action. We have two verbs that are related. And I want you to pay attention to these two verbs and ponder them to yourself, maybe later on. But look, the action of studying or pondering the word of God comes from the heart attitude of delight. Those who delight in the word, those who delight in the truths of God, those who delight in the gospel will do what? Study them, study them. Now, it's interesting when it comes to that verse, we have to be reminded of something and Broyles, Craig Broyles helps us with this. He says this verse in verse two, this this very important passage elicits not a sense of duty or obligation, but hear this, but of discovery and delight, right? See, again, I want to take this and teach it like it's one of Paul's epistles and say, church, we've got to study the word of God. That's not what the Psalm's doing. It's an invitation to discovery. Come into the word of God. Discover this incredible treasure we have. I'll illustrate it by this. Think of the person, for those of you who are believers, Think of the person or maybe a few people whom God used to share the gospel and bring you to the king. 
Think of those people who had the courage to share the gospel or the discipline. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a mentor. Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a future spouse. But who are those people or who is that person in your life that you're so grateful? How do you feel about those people right now? You delight in them, right? The same is true for God's word. And you've heard my testimony before. When I was uh, 22 years old, there was no Christian witness in my life. There was no evangelist. There was a priest who told me to read the Bible, which I praise God for, and there was a stepmom who let me borrow a Bible, and it was the Word of God. And if I get really excited about telling you guys to read the Scriptures, read the Scripture, I almost sound legalistic sometimes, and I don't mean to. I'm just so excited by them because I delight in them. In fact, I brought with me the very Bible that my stepmom let me borrow all those years ago. And yes, it is NIV, so you can't pick on the NIV too much. It is the Word of God. It's a good translation. But I went home, and, and this sat on a bookshelf my whole childhood collecting dust right next to the TV. But when God began to break me and show me who I was, the darkness of my soul, and that priest told me to get a Bible, I went home and got this one. And you guys know the rest of the story. But that's why I delight so much in the Word. And if you don't delight in the Word, beg God to give you a hunger for His Scripture. And take the, uh, the challenge to jump in and discover this beautiful, beautiful tapestry of truth and redemption. So two gives us the theme. We're, we're thanking God. We're celebrating his saving work in history. And then verse three shows us what the psalmist will do next. And we're going to see this about four or five times as we get to the body of this psalm. The psalmist will say something about what God has done in history to save his people. And then he'll follow it by attributing character attributes to God, essentially glorifying God for who he is. And that's what verse three does for us. Verse three shows us that aspect. And you see him right away here glorifying God. Look what he says. He says, full of splendor and majesty. Now, one thing we don't have is we don't have the context of Passover, right? When they're celebrating Passover, there's a lot of context that they have. So some of the things in this, this psalm are implied that we don't have as explicit as we may like. And verse three is one of those. The words splendor and majesty have to do with uh, recognizing the king who is before you. These are royal terms uh, attributing to the king uh, majesty and splendor. And so in, in the context of their worship, right, they're celebrating Passover. What did God do through the plagues? What did God do through the Red Sea? He humbled Pharaoh, who was the mightiest king on the face of the earth. And so God demonstrated his greater power, his being the greater king by barely lifting a finger to put down what was the most mightiest man on earth, like it was nothing. That's the context. That's the, the festival context behind verse three is he's attributing such glory to God for his work. And then he ends with that great statement, his righteousness endures forever. Why does God's righteousness endure forever? Because those whom he saved will be giving him glory and praising him for all eternity because of what he has done to save us and to keep his promises until the end. So a few application points for us before we jump into the heart and body of this great psalm. Uh, the first one is this. What is at work in my heart and yours, but I'm talking pick on myself right now. What is at work in my heart when I am not thankful 
for something that I should be. There's probably a lot of things, but two I want to focus on that I know are very true. I've proven them over and over. First, it means I'm taking something for granted. We've all been there, where we take something for granted until it's, it's gone, right? Uh, Robert and I have enjoyed free office space at Double Springs Baptist Church for two years, and they needed that space back, which is great. Again, how could we not be thankful? But even this week, I had to go into storage, which is a hassle to pull this Bible out of a box that, of course, was on the bottom of the stack of boxes, right? So I learned this week just how much I had taken for granted that free office space by a sister church to store my things, right? We've all been there. The other thing that's at work, and this is a little bit more dangerous, a sense of entitlement, a sense of entitlement that I deserve that. And again, until it's gone, and then I realize just how much uh, my heart is wrong. My heart is crooked. And friends, when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to the grace that we have received from God through Jesus Christ, we can do neither of those two things, right? We can't, we have to work hard not to take our salvation for granted or to ever for a moment think that somehow we're entitled to it, right? If we think we're entitled, we don't understand grace. We think we had something to do or or uh, somehow our work or our, our pretty smile got us that salvation. And that is not the case. So, so important for us when it comes to our salvation as well. Uh, so also, I want us to look at one verse here. This passage comes from Romans 8. I know you know Romans. Let us look at this, again, just joining the psalmist here in this sense of worship and thankfulness. But look at what Paul says about Uh, the love of God for those who are in Christ, those who have been chosen by God's grace. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that an awesome truth? That is the steadfast love of the Lord, the covenant love of our great God in heaven. So we've seen the call to worship. We've seen the introduction to the psalm. The body of this psalm runs from verses four through nine, and I've simply entitled this, Praise for His Wondrous Works. Here's where we're gonna see uh, the psalmist walk through uh, this beautiful chain of events. And before I read, I'll say this. In this passage, you're going to see, um, it's a little hard to see in some places, but in the Old Covenant, as they're remembering the Passover, as they're remembering Exodus, there's a threefold chain of events. It's very similar to the new covenant with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, right? Sometimes we talk about those individually, but they're really just one unbreakable chain of events. And in the Old Testament, it was the Exodus, the wilderness provisions, and the conquest of the land. And you're going to see that as we read through. So join me back in the text. We're going to read through verses 4 through 9, make a few brief comments, uh, and get to our conclusion. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome 
is his name. So there's several things, several works that the psalmist praises God for in the history of Israel, celebrating it, but then quickly, as you saw right after each one, he glorifies God by saying these important attributes of our saving father in heaven. In verses four, six, and seven, you see that unbreakable chain of exodus, wilderness, and conquest. Look with me back at the text. And don't miss the first three words of verse four. He has caused. And you'll see that again in verse five. He provides. Verse six, he has shown. Verse nine, he sent redemption. You see there the sovereignty of God. What, the, uh, what Martin Luther and the reformers called monergism, the work of one to graciously save his people. So then that what? He gets all the glory. We share none of it because he did it and he alone did it. But in verse four, again, behind this is the Exodus. It's, it's implied here, not as explicit, but it's referring to his wondrous works. Again, they're celebrating Passover. They know what they're remembering. The gracious works of God. So think about this. Not only his redemption from Egypt and slavery, but the fact he sent a redeemer. He sent Moses to redeem them. And then we have the 10 plagues. Another great study for you is each of those 10 plagues corresponds with one of the false gods of Egypt. Almost like smacking them in the face because they don't exist. They're not real. Uh, And then, of course, uh, the big epic climax of it, which is the parting of the Red Sea and Israel's ability to move on to safety while the Egyptian army got squashed by those waves. So that's all encapsulated there in verse four, the first part of verse four. And then look what he says, grace and mercy. How often do we talk about grace and mercy when it comes to the gospel? So he's glorifying God for that great rescue from slavery by proclaiming God's grace. When we get something we don't deserve, opportunity to be thankful and God's mercy when what we do deserve is held back, which is the wrath of God. And then we move on to verse five. This is a little more obvious. He provides food for those who fear him. That's talking about the wilderness wanderings. What was the food God provided in the wilderness? Quail and manna, right? Uh, now, this is one instance where we see that the uh, psalmist has to get creative. Again, he's, he's doing this acrostic poem. And the word food is actually the first word of that line in the Hebrew. And that's not the word for food. It's actually the word for prey. Not this kind of prey, that kind of prey. So any hunters in here can appreciate him using the word prey for food. That's talking about manna. And then you see the, uh, the glorification line. He remembers his covenant forever. We just got done uh, doing the responsive reading. That was Psalm 136. Did you notice in Psalm 136, it talked about what? The exodus, the wilderness, and the conquest, and each line praising God for that loyal covenantal love for his children, the never giving up love, the love that Paul just talked about in Romans 8, and we see it there um, as well. And I'll have more to say about the wilderness here in a moment. Verse 6, we see, of course, the conquest. That's talking about entering into the promised land. Uh, The inheritance of the nations is Canaan. That's the land that the Canaanites used to rule. God went in, wiped him out. I love Joshua, and I love my favorite part, because this would be me. Joshua goes up to the commander of the Lord's armies, who's probably, I believe, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Jesus. He goes up to the commanders of the Lord's army, and Joshua's like, are you with us or for us? Are you with us or against us? And God's commander says, no, (laughs) you got it backwards. You're here with me. It doesn't work that way. Uh, So again, incredible background, historical background there to see that conquest And we see that in verse six. Now, I believe 
the beginning of verse 7 is where we see that glorification line or clause for the conquest. He says, the works of his hands are faithful and just. Because look at the next part of verse 7 and verse 8. He moves on. He moves on from the Exodus wilderness conquest to talk about God's special revelation. Now, that took place, of course, in the middle of all that. Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, right? Uh, As well as scripture being written during that time as well. So there at the end of verse 7, all his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. So in addition to all those three salvific works, God graciously gave to us his word. He gave to us his special revelation. He gave to us that which without is salvation is impossible. No one can be saved apart from the special revelation of God's word, God's gospel, uh, and for them, God's law back in that time. And, and what a precious statement for us to be reminded of this treasure we have, this treasure that we should not take for granted. Now, that, um, I don't know about you, but when I read that, it reminds me of Psalm 119. And I encourage you, homework assignment. If your relationship with God's word needs a jump start, that desire to ponder his truth, Psalm 119 is a great primer for that. You have 176 verses all about God's word all about God's special revelation that he has given to us. And that's what we have here. You'll see a a slide up on the screen. And this is a quote from uh, Van Gimmeren. He says, the word of God was not a burden, again, for the people of Israel or for us. It was to give order to God's people that they might reflect the nature of their king. Raise your hand if you want to reflect the nature of your king this morning. That's what God's word does what God's word does as we engage it. The word is the foundation of the growth and development of his people. And what was true for the Jews in the old covenant is true for us who are in Christ today. John 17, John 17, the word sanctifies us, makes us more like Christ. Uh, And then in verse 9, uh, the final verse of this body, he kind of, uh, you know, he entered in when verses 2 or 3 kind of entered into this Uh, This great psalm and celebration of God's redemption. Verse 9 is kind of the climax, a conclusion of this time of of celebration, of praise, of thanksgiving for what God has done. And we see how he closes it up. He says he sent, God sent redemption, rescue to his people. Look at that. What beautiful language. He sent a Savior to us. And Moses for them, and of course, Christ Jesus for us, the son of David sent redemption to his people. And then secondly, he has commanded his covenant forever. Again, another reference to that kessed love, that steadfast love of God, the loyal promise-keeping love of God for his children. And then we see a final uh, clause of glory attributing God's greatness. Holy and awesome is his name. Powerful. And just imagine, again, you guys are sitting passively listening to me. This is, by the way, the worst form of human communication possible with one sender and a bunch of receivers, right? But of course, we're trusting in the Holy Spirit to work in this time. But back then, they would have been much more engaged, standing and shouting and uh, more demonstrative in their worship. Again, you guys are good. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. But just imagine what it might have been like in the temple courts uh, during this incredibly fun week. And by the way, we're getting ready to start a great 
week of Thanksgiving here as well, uh, just engaging in worship and praise for what God has done. Uh, A few application points before we get to the final conclusion of this great psalm. Here's another quote from uh, Van Gimmeren. He says, The mention of these acts instills the hope that the Lord who has redeemed his people in the past will redeem his people in the future. When we worship God, whenever we celebrate God, whether individually, as a family, or even as a congregation uh, in worship, as we celebrate what he has done, we should always look forward to what we're hoping that he will do in the future as well. And that's, that was always the hope. And, and by the way, that's behind a lot of the Psalms, especially David's, right? He, he'll look back, they'll look back to what God has done and then plead with him to do it once more. For me, for the nation, uh, save again, O Lord. And that's, that's what comes out of this great Psalm. Now, I've put up on the, uh, the screen here several ways that we can do this as families and as a congregation. Uh, so the first one is this, remember his saving works, which we're doing. Uh, but as we read the word of God, even in the New Testament, and here's an example of that. One of my favorite passages comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. And he does this very thing that we just got done doing in Psalm 111. He does with the gospel. And, and you see all three of those aspects in the gospel. You, th- you see the the rescue from redemption, you see the provision in life, and you see the promise of future inheritance as well. Let's join Peter in praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power today are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Isn't that amazing? Peter's doing the exact same thing the psalmist is doing like 500 years later. But now with the new covenant, what they hoped for in the old covenant and looked forward to, Peter now can look back and we can look back with him to that climatic moment of the ministry of our Savior Jesus Christ. So back to the other slide, if you will, Isaac, with the list. The second thing, taking time to worship and give thanks when we pray to the Lord. That's the point, again, of a lot of this series in Psalm, is that when you pray, whether it's individually, as a family, um, even as a church, that we take time to infuse into our prayer thanksgiving and worship for what God has done. When we, you know, no matter what sin it is that we want to get on our knees and confess, no matter what set of circumstances that has us so perplexed and depressed, if we started out by worshiping God and thanking God, it's amazing how he will lift our eyes from the horizontal to the vertical. And that's exactly what you see happen time and time again in the entire book of the Psalms. You see him do that uh, with him. In fact, I've learned in my life when I've gotten depressed because of current circumstances or even things from the past, it's hard. But if I take time to thank God for what I still have, it's amazing how he lifts me out of that pit of despair and puts me back on solid ground on the rock of Jesus Christ. So that's a great discipline for us. Third thing, 
And this is a timely celebrating Advent as a family. I know some of you do this. If you don't, especially you young first-time parents, start a tradition of celebrating Advent with your children. We're uh, starting on, you know, get one of the calendars. There's so many different types you can get. And each day celebrating some aspect of the Christmas story. And usually you want to accompany that with candy, which is always good, right? Uh, the sweetness of the grace of God. So that's a great tradition. There's a good resource, by the way. I don't have a have one uh, copy with me, but some of you have heard of a guy named John Piper. That was a joke. He married Noel Piper, and Noel Piper has written a book about celebrating traditions as Christians, and of course, it includes a part in there about Advent. So that'd be an excellent resource uh, for you to get for your family. And then let's move down to the corporate, right? And, and a lot of this is repeated from what can happen at the home. But I say the ones here on the corporate for what's coming up here in the near future. Next week, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. So we're going to take the supper as a family. I'm going to have the privilege of leading you all in that time. And that's our opportunity. Just like Passover and the festivals were for the Jews, the Lord's Supper is for the church where we celebrate God's saving activity, his gracious saving work through Christ in the past and also in our life. But we also anticipate and look forward to what he will do in the future. So the Lord's Supper is an excellent opportunity. Uh, we take it seriously here at the Church of Blue Ridge. We also do it every month because we want it to be a little more frequent than we as Baptists typically uh, celebrate it. Uh, the second thing is celebrating Advent in December. This might be new for some of you. We uh, always celebrate Advent. We have a sermon series that looks at the coming, the first coming of Jesus Christ and celebrates the themes of hope and peace and joy and love. And of course, Jesus himself. So starting next week, Daniel is going to preach the first sermon in that series. We do something different every year. We've been in the uh, prologue to John. We've been in Isaiah. This, this uh, year, we're going to go through the traditional uh, birth narratives from both Matthew and Luke. So we'll be starting that next week. And uh, I think we're going to have the candle lighting, which is really exciting. And all of this is the anticipation of the celebration of the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ. So it's going to be a sweet time as we move into the month of December. And I even put that on there for the future, just celebration of Easter. But one of the great things about uh, those of us who are in Christ is every day is Easter. Amen. Every Sunday is Easter. See, when I was a kid, it was just that one Sunday. But that's one of the differences I've noticed since coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It's every Sunday it's every day. So just some, uh, some opportunities for us. Now, this is going to go really quick because we've got one, left, one verse left. And in the psalm, verse 10 serves as a conclusion. It's different than all the rest because it is wisdom literature. This is a proverb. And uh, just like any good sermon has a call to worship, that good sermon will end with a call to response, a call to obedience. And that's what verse 10 is. So let's read that together as we conclude today's sermon time. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So this is a call to obedience. Look at this quote from Craig uh, Broyles who comments on this very verse. He says, the recital of Yahweh's saving deeds should evoke the mental engagement of one pondering, the attitude of fearing, and the behavior of doing. With all three of these responses being done within the framework of praise. What a beautiful description of this great psalm. And, and as we look at it, it reminds us of what other book that's close by, the Proverbs. This is very similar to Proverbs, even the theme of Proverbs. 
And we see that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, one important fact that connects verse 9 to verse 10, the, word, the English words fear and awesome come from the exact same root word in Hebrews. So that helps us to understand how to fear the Lord. We fear the Lord by being in awe of who he is. And, and not just like on Sunday morning when you come here, but as, as much as we can, more so and more so in every area of our lives, every day of our life, allowing that awe of God to invade every space. No compartmentalization in the Christian life. We allow that to come in and dictate every aspect of, of who we are, every office that we hold, every responsibility that we have, everything that we do. How is the awesomeness of God and my response to it in fear and respect and reverence uh, speaking into my life and calling me to change, calling me to repentance and faith? And a couple of things that we have to keep in mind with the fear of the Lord, the way I like to explain it is it's caring more about what God thinks and says than anyone else, than any human being, including myself, to care more about what God thinks and says than anyone else. That's one way to think of and actually practice the fear of the Lord. And then also the moment of salvation. This is true. When you come to faith in Christ, it is the beginning of wisdom because the first time you ever Fear God is when you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. What precedes repentance? Recognition. That's what it was for me. God opened my eyes to the darkness of my soul, and I didn't like what I saw. And he used that. As I looked into the mirror of his word, he used that to help me to do a 180, to turn from my sins and follow Jesus, putting my faith in him as my substitute and the Savior uh, and, and uh, Redeemer of my soul. So that's another way to think of uh, the fear of the Lord as well. And then we get a promise. All who practice it, right? So there's an implication there. It's not just for the day of salvation. It's every day. As I come encounter with God's word, every day learning to fear him, which then leads me to repentance and faith, repeating that cycle each and every day. That's sanctification. That's the process of becoming more like Christ. And here's the promise, good understanding, knowing the difference between right and wrong, knowing the difference between wisdom and foolishness, but not only knowing it, learning and helping, uh, having the ability to apply it into my life by the grace of God. And then finally, his praise endures forever. There's the final attribution of God's glory. His praise endures forever. So a beautiful psalm for us, and just a few more words uh, to tack on to the end. First, look at this great uh, proverb, if you will, that, uh, again, this brings to mind that wisdom literature. And here in Proverbs 3, one of our favorite passages in that book, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, all your ways, acknowledge him. And here's the promise, he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and here, here's a good definition, turn away from evil. Helps us to understand what the psalmist is ending Psalm 111 uh, with. And so we've talked about how to practice the fear of the Lord. And one last visualization I give you, I didn't put the slide up, I just couldn't do it. 
but I think it's a great uh, visual reminder. You guys will know what I'm talking about. Everyone have in their mind, especially you parents, the aliens from Toy Story 2. Remember those little green squishy aliens? What did they say over and over to Woody after he saved him? We are eternally grateful, right? That's what we use that as a visualization. Because if you're in Christ, God has rescued you, not by any, any reason that comes from you, purely by his grace, purely by his will. And then he also gives us the, the covenant of promise that by his steadfast, kessed love, he keeps us in Christ, not by our performance, but again, by his grace. So let us be eternally grateful in this life and forevermore. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band back up and we're, we've got one last song of response. Let us join the psalmist, if we haven't already, in this last song by praising God with a whole heart. If you're in Christ today, guard your hearts from lip service. Think about the words. Let your heart and your lips be connected. And for those of you who are not in Christ, you can't worship him. You can't begin to thank him. You, you just, it's all dead religion. Come and talk to one of us. Let us share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether it's today, tomorrow, or any day of the week, I can speak for myself and my brothers, Robert and Daniel. We are available to you. We will put aside everything else to have that conversation with you. Don't let a day go by. Don't let a day go by. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this time in your word. Thank you for this season of Thanksgiving. And thank you for the joyous opportunity we have one more time this morning to worship you in song as a congregation. Be with us now. Be glorified. And thank you for all you have done for saving those of us who are in Christ. If there is anyone in this room, in this building who doesn't know you, save them as well. Bring them to the place of repentance and faith. We love you, Lord, and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.